and welcome back to series two of the respiratory guru the home of the genuinely useful research updates I'm so excited to be back here recording as we've got some brilliant podcasts lined up with some excellent speakers and a range of really interesting different subjects that I hope will improve your day-to-day clinical practice. So why tune in for this podcast series? Well, it's all about making the most of your very limited time to focus on some CPD. And when you do get to sit down, what you want is consolidated, efficient and relevant information let's face it, real life makes that really hard. Conferences are you know, once or twice a year, really far away, and try juggling that with family life. Papers never seem entirely relevant to the clinical practice and the practice changing things that I want to deliver. I also have discovered that I learn much better when I'm listening to information rather than reading it. So I love the podcast format, and it also usually means I can do something with my hands at the same time as listening, such as driving or making sure that everyone is fed and in bed. So finally, who am I? I'm Diana Kavanagh. I'm a respiratory consultant, and I work in the West Midlands The West Midlands is a hub of tertiary centres, which means I've worked with some amazing colleagues who were very kindly given at their time to be interviewed by me in this series. I've chosen to stick to specialities in each podcast so you can be choosy in which one you listen to that is most relevant to your day-to-day practice. I hope you enjoy listening and please remember to hit subscribe and leave a review as it really does make all the difference. So for today's podcast, I'm really excited to be joined by two of the national leaders in COPD. So today we're joined by Professor Alice Turner, who we've spoken to in the past on the last COPD podcast, and Dr. LJ Smith. Um, So introductions, please. Alice, are you happy to introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a professor of respiratory medicine in Birmingham, and I mostly focus around COPD clinical trials. I'm also the lead of the Alpha One, um, a large Alpha One cohort in Birmingham and um, a specialist centre for that. Um, I guess I'm mostly interested in clinical epidemiology and clinical trials, um, but essentially I'm interested in far too much stuff and always have new things that I want to be going and doing. So I'm also directing a patient safety centre as of um, just recently. Fantastic. Um, That sounds wonderful. I'd love to hear more sometime. Um, And LJ, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. LJ Smith. I'm a respiratory consultant in South London. I do airways disease and lung cancer as my main job. And I also have interests in health inequalities and in uh, sustainable respiratory care, so planet-friendly healthcare. Fantastic. Yeah, also very topical at the moment. I'm sure one of the studies that we're going to come on to will give us the opportunity to yeah delve into some of those issues. So, OK, brilliant. So the first study that we are going to talk about is... Um, well, an opportunity for me to learn a bit more about some general medicine as well, I suppose. So the, the title of the study is Novel Antihyperglycemic Drugs and the Prevention of COPD Exacerbations Amongst Patients with Type 2 Diabetes Population-Based Cohort Study. So the aim of this study uh, was to determine whether the use of some of these novel antihyperglycemics, mainly the GLP-1 agonists, the DPP-4 and the SGL-2 inhibitors, SGL-2s, 
are associated with a reduction of COPD exacerbations in type 2 diabetes. So the primary outcome of the study was the time to the first exacerbation, first severe exacerbation of COPD. And this was all a population-based cohort study. So there's multiple national databases. So they were able to gather thousands and thousands of patients' data to compare the novel antihyperglycemics to the more traditional sulfonylureas and then to see um, if the COPD exacerbation rates were higher um, when you compared one for the other. So effectively, they compared in one arm of the study sulfonylureas with the GLP-1s. Um, so a good example of those would be exenatides and liraglutide. Uh, then they compared sulfonylureas to the deep PP4s, that's the cetagliptins, and then the sulfonylureas versus the SGLT2s, and an example of that is the flozins. I mean, just, well, I'll keep reading out the study, but I just wanted to say that these drug names, I've read them in the medical notes and um, I haven't understood them. And I, I must say, because they were uh, anything that was invented after, certainly after MRCP, embarrassingly in 2012, uh, struggles to get onto my radar in any great depth unless it's respiratory. So actually, this is quite a good opportunity for me to actually know what some of these stand for and how they work, etc. So I hope for the listeners as well, it will be, um, you know, sort of... Uh, a dual benefit learning about COPD and some of these drugs. I don't think many of us feel mm, that well versed in. Anyway, so in this study, what they were doing in these this quite simple design of sulfonylurea versus one, then the other, then the other, was calculating the hazard ratio um, of a severe exacerbation denoted by a, a hospital admission um, and or a moderate exacerbation denoted by oral steroids and antibiotics. So calculating the hazard ratio of one of those in each of those arms of the study, as it were, and, and finding out, I guess, which one is best in terms of reducing exacerbations. So what it showed ultimately was that the uh, GLP-1s um, had the most significant reduction in exacerbations. So they reduced severe exacerbations by 30%, and then they also significantly reduced moderate exacerbations. Um, the SGLT2s, they did reduce the severe exacerbations by 38%. So a really good reduction in severe exacerbation of COPD in that group, although had no effect on the moderate uh, COPD exacerbations. And then the, DT, the DPP4s didn't really have any effect at all. I think in the um, in the sulfonylurea rear arm, it was 5.1. And then in the DPP4 arm, it was 4.6. Um, risk of exacerbation, so nothing significant. So what, so, okay, so the GLP-1s are better at preventing the COPD exacerbations than the sulfonylureas. And then I went on to, I think it was like the BM, uh, the best practice guidelines on, on the internet and had a look at the GLP-1s, uh, GLP-1 agonists. And then they were right at down at the fourth or fifth line drug for diabetes. So even if we wanted to say to our patients, um, please prescribe GLP-1 agonists you know, in these diabetic patients, I think we struggle because they're A, very expensive and B, running out. Um, and when I spoke to my G one of my best friends who's a GP, that's what she said. So I got that information from her. She said there's a reason why these GLP agonists are uh, fourth line. That's because they're very expensive. 
they're the best and she says they're brilliant at reducing inflammation in in multiple body systems but um but but yeah it comes at a cost literally so I've kind of waffled there sorry Alice that was uh, a run into the study um I hope you've not gone to sleep um you what what was your take home on this paper is it was was it something that was familiar to you and um I guess would it change your practice so um, I'm glad you said that you didn't know much about the drugs before you started reading about them, because um, my first encounters with some of these novel um, drugs were when I was on a nice healthcare technology appraisal committee over the last few years and was one of the ones that had reviewed some of the flozins and also reviewed some of this class of drugs when they first started coming in and being approved for obesity indications. So um, I think they are really important drug classes for us to know about, and they are going to be used in many of our patients, even if they're not never used for COPD exacerbations. The fact that we understand what they do and that they have indications in multimorbidity now as well. So um, alpha-1 doctor also deal with liver disease. So interestingly, this class of drugs also now coming through for use in NAFLD, um, so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease quite a lot of debate as to whether they help the liver disease through the mechanism of making patients lose weight on them or through something specific to the liver. But overall, I, I kind of read this and I was like, this is an interesting drug class to look at. I would be interested in further studies of the mechanism. Um, I would be interested in running clinical trials to see in this patient group, does it have a relationship? Because I can think of lots of confounders that could have had an impact in this study. So, I mean, it was a CPRD study. The numbers are pretty big, um, but in the GLP-1 and the SLGT group, there were like about one, one to 3,000 patients in those um, that were on the active arms. And so, you know, that's comparatively speaking, not big numbers for diabetes studies. And so the biases that the authors fully recognise in their limitations about there being selection biases for these particular patients, and presumably given that the numbers are relatively small, these are essentially people who are early comers to the drugs, compared to if you did the study again now. So something that I don't think they could adequately control for, although they tried to control for patient-related factors, was practice-related factors. So if you had a practice that was totally on it with their diabetes care and use these drugs early in their patients, um, then potentially you might be looking at a practice that was also a bit more on it in terms of other in other health service structures and therefore might be doing more proactive stuff, maybe better self-management plans, other things that would go alongside good quality care. And I'm not sure that their propensity matching could fully have controlled for that. But that's the nature of real life studies. And if this is something that helps to get us into um, a, a more robust study design for this, I'd be interested. I think last time we talked about sugar and sputum, didn't we? And so this also brought me on to, OK, what's the mechanism? So if it is to do with this, is it to do with entirely sugar control and therefore um, you've got less tasty airways for the books yes I guess my interpretation of it was oh in saying that LJ can probably I because at the end of her email it's got that she's a I think 
a lifestyle medicine physician now I have seen so she might be able to comment more but I, I consider myself an enthusiast um with this kind of lifestyle medicine thing and you know and I guess the metabolic syndrome and the, and the uh, systemic inflammation in my head was maybe what was kind of part of the mechanism if you reduce inflammation because you're improving the diabetes control does that then improve the metabolic syndrome and therefore improve system systemic inflammation you might laugh at me for my daily mail take on um the on the study but no not at all I, I mean I thought the same thing it made me think of um it's so interesting these drugs I remember first of all reading about metformin being a kind of first drug thought about for for COPD exacerbations and it's had sort of limited efficacy and only in diabetics and then there are other thoughts about oh can we reduce um glucose levels systemically and in the airways and does that lead to reduction in exacerbations and so that's what I was thinking about too and these drug classes are really interesting and I think you're right that there's a there's a mechanism through which there's probably multiple mechanisms through which these drugs are working so some of it is very specifically around the pathways that they're interacting with but some of it is weight loss and some of it is these wider things there's some controversy around some of the weight loss drugs obviously and that's been in the news a lot you can get them privately quite easily it seems in some settings and so certainly um, we are going to need to know about them because there, there are side effects that are going to hit our EDs and our medical takes I imagine um, and just thinking about the sort of broader things I think one of the worries is that oh we can just have these drugs and then we don't have to do the other stuff so we can fix obesity with a drug and then we don't have to worry about improving people's diet and and people might think oh we can just um, give people these drugs and they won't get COPD exacerbations and then we don't need to worry about it so much but I don't think that's ever going to be true and lifestyle interventions need to absolutely go alongside drug interventions so that we can improve people's entirety of their health so we're not just about preventing disease and treating disease we're really about trying to give people the best lives that we can and a lot of that will be due will, will they will need support with um changing some of the lifestyle factors um that our current kind of environment leads to unhealthy behaviors it's not an individual thing it's the fact that we're in a very um kind of inflammatory polluted obesity generating environment um yeah I think I knew we'd go down that rabbit hole quite quickly um, about, yeah, lifestyle and, you know, how, how on earth, you know, you know where, where does our responsibility lie as secondary, even primary care physicians? Um, I, we, we'll move on to the next study in a minute, but I remember it really got my hackles up when uh, we got asked to re reduce our follow-up appointments from 15 to 10 minutes. And you just cannot look at someone from a multi-organ, multi-system point of view um, in 10 minutes. And I do think that we should be you know ideally doing all of that um I don't yeah, know. I mean, while we're talking about that let's also think about cardiovascular disease with this particular trial and population so I mean COPD patients probably do get cardiovascular disease at a greater rate than um matched smokers so that's probably an inflammatory hypothesis but some of these diabetes drugs have been shown to have greater effects on cardiovascular events. Um, so flozins, for example, I think, have been shown to have greater um, gr greater effects on cardiovascular events compared to the other diabetes drugs. And so I think we would probably all recognise that cardiovascular events can be quite a big mimic of a COPD exacerbation. And particularly in a coded study where you're looking at what patients took themselves um, maybe what patients took without ever seeing a healthcare professional in person, you know, getting their chest listened to for a bit of pulmonary edema, somebody maybe doing an ECG, 
how many of these events may have been cardiovascular and to what extent could that have been impacting upon some of the results? That would be something interesting to assess in a prospective study that's got the ability to do that. No, yeah, that's so true. Um, I also wondered, because a lot of these studies that are, that are being done with these um, drugs, particularly the flozins, are, you know, there's increasing indications for them. So heart failure, renal disease, liver disease. Um, and I do, I haven't seen any studies that kind of particularly look at multimorbidity and trying to find a cohort of patients who would most benefit. You know, logically, it seems like it would be these multimorbid patients. Um, and I wonder whether we could then add COPD into that list. And if you've got a cluster of a number of these conditions, whether drugs like the flozins would have an additional benefit. So that would be really interesting if that can be looked at in future studies. Alice, that's a job for you. Maybe that you can, yeah, tackle that next. I'll add it to the list. Okay. Um, okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think now's a good time to move on to the next study then, if that's okay. Um, so LJ, um, over to you. Fantastic. Um, so this study is, uh, I'm sure, of interest to, to this group, particularly Alice. So this is budesonide formoterol mart versus fluticasone salmetro fixed dose treatment in patients with COPD. So this is a really interesting study because mart maintenance and reliever therapy, so using one combination ICS labber with a quick acting labber, is a, a treatment approach that's really established in asthma, but um, it's not something we do generally in COPD. And this is the first study um, that I and the authors are aware of that look that's looked at MART in COPD. So this was a Dutch study. Uh, it aimed to compare the efficacy and safety of a MART regime versus a fixed dose regime in people who had moderate or severe COPD. Um, people with COPD had to have had one or more exacerbations in the last two years because that was the, one of the things they're looking at. And this was a randomised open label parallel group trial and people were randomised one to one to either MART or fixed dose. One of the interesting things is that the, the inhalers they use, um, all of them were dry powders. So the MART arm was Spiramax 164.5 um, twice a day plus PRN and the fixed dose was the discus 551 BD plus salbutamol as the PRN inhaler um, and they were kind of matched in terms of budesonide equivalence so that the ICS dose was similar as it's different with the different kind of particle sizes. So um, they stratified for a number of things including things like smoking status, FEV1, number of exacerbations, the, um, they had to be between 40 and 80 years old and they had um, they excluded people with a with a coded diagnosis of asthma, which I'm sure will be important as we kind of discuss um, what we think about the outcome. And the primary outcome was the number of moderate or severe exacerbations expressed as an annual rate. So a moderate exacerbation was one which was treated with antibiotics and steroids, and a severe exacerbation was a hospitalisation, which is pretty standard for kind of COPD type trials. Um, so the outcomes. So uh, they had 103 patients randomised to MART, 92 to the fixed dose. They did have a difficulty uh, recruiting for their power calculation because the funding got pulled. So one of the perils of uh, research, their funding got pulled before the end. Um, but they found no difference in the MART group versus the fixed dose group for moderate or severe exacerbations or for time to first exacerbation. Um, and the median time to a first exacerbation was 211 days in the MARC group, 195 days in the fixed dose group. So not that many exacerbations. 
And they found that patients using MART used a lot less ICS in the course of the day, um, inhaled corticosteroid, um, but there was no uh, difference in reliever use, which I thought was interesting. And then the only last point was that obviously one of the concerns about um, using inhaled corticosteroids is the excess pneumonia risk. And we normally would see that with higher ICS doses. But in this study, people on the MART arm who had a lower overall exposure to inhaled corticosteroids actually had a slightly higher pneumonia risk. So the relative risk was seven. So it was 7.8% versus 1.1%. And that wasn't really, couldn't really be explained because it doesn't really make sense from what we know about, about ICS. So I thought this was a really interesting study just because it really wasn't something I thought about in terms of thinking about MART for COPD. I do have some questions about what phenotype this group were, and particularly because there was only a post hoc subgroup analysis looking at blood eosinophils, which is a bit disappointing because if we're phenotyping our COPD patients, eosinophils are such an important part of our of our assessment as whether we're using steroids or not. So that was a bit disappointing that they they weren't able to kind of look at that because of too small sample size by the time they did the post hoc analysis. Thank you, LJ. That was yeah, very uh, very succinct. Thank you. And um, I actually I actually quite like this, but you know, I actually quite like the paper. I thought it was laid out in terms of like you know you're sort of doing your uh, um, trying to assess a paper and you're at med school. I thought it was actually very well written. And I quite enjoyed reading it. That's a strange thing to say. Um, and I agree about the eosinophils. It's a shame, isn't it? Because when we were sort of doing our pre-meet uh, emails, my impression before reading the paper was that. Yeah, I guess how we, um, what's the word, uh, precision medicine, how we, we're going along with that. You'd have thought that they would have thought about eosinophils at the beginning of this, given that the MART is already so strongly associated with asthma. Um, I mean, over to the expert, Alice. Um, what's your thoughts about this study? And again, you know, are you going to start putting your COPD patients who are, you know, um, more willing to engage in their own care are you going to start putting them on mart therapy for you know rather than just bd dosing i think my primary driver to inhale corticosteroid use is there is infill count and and so and so i'm and the exacerbation rate obviously people who don't exacerbate don't need them um but i think that's going to be the first thing i would think about and it's probably the first thing i think about in asthma as well i mean you know we're giving steroids much earlier but when we are using these dual combinations it, it's the exacerbation rate it's some of the other features that we're looking at that would drive whether we make this choice a lot of it is more to do with compliance, maybe, when I think about it in an asthma population, because I use it in a, in two ways. I use it in the people who want to engage with their care, but also paradoxically, the people that don't engage at all on the basis that I might just randomly sneak some steroid in when, when they just take it instead of their reliever because they don't have a reliever anymore. <laughs> um, so I, I and, and that probably isn't something I want to do in my COPD patients. I also wonder how would I use this uh, in the world of triples? Um, because in, in an asthma patient where probably that's their only maintenance drug, um, you know, that's sort of easy. They just take that as them as their as their reliever and their maintenance. But in a COPD patient in a triple world, I don't want to give um a triple for prn or, or you know uh vary it as you want to thing because you're going to be varying too much of your other doses as well 
Wouldn't you just? So, sorry, to ask a stupid question. If you're if you're already on triple therapy, wouldn't you just separate out the triple therapy into two inhalers and then say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you could do that. But um, there has been some data showing that people who use triples are less prone to exacerbations than people who use um, triple but in separate inhalers. And the the thinking around that is that the reason it works is probably to do with compliance and inhaler technique issues, because historically, a lot of the trip separate inhaler triple therapy, um, multiple inhaler triple therapy MIT, I think, is the typically used um, uh, shortening, shortened form. So with MIT, often in the past, it was different devices, because even now, the only one we can give that's the same device is if you go down the elliptor road. And, you know, the same device isn't going to work for everybody. So if you then go down single inhaler triple therapy, you're probably going to be using two dry powders for most people. Um, and so then you've not got inhaler technique issues that you would do if you combined your MDI with your dry powder, as it would have been back in the serotide and spireva days. Um, so compliance and inhaler technique. So I think there's a few things to think about. Um, I... I'd be interested in seeing more studies of it, but I'd probably be interested in seeing the studies in a population that I would consider to be ICS eligible, which would be selected based on eosinophil count. And I know that that's not fully in the guidelines, but that is what I do. Um, I do try to avoid ICS in people that have got low blood eosinophil counts because I don't think there's any evidence to support their use. I think that's, yeah, I think that's very much the direction of travel and what most people are doing now particularly with gold guidance kind of supporting that approach I guess for me this made me feel a little reassured that I know that some of my patients basically do mar anyway even though I tell them to just have a fixed dose and that if that's the case there's probably not a huge harm there so that was a bit reassuring um, similarly I'd be really interested in future studies that were then that we're then looking at people we'd usually put on ICS and then thinking about whether there is a benefit to MART therapy in that specific phenotype because um, I'm not sure of that if they're getting lower ICS dose overall but are having an equal outcome in terms of exacerbation rate that would be a huge win but I'm, I don't think this trial necessarily answers that question. Mm. And overall steroid load is oral steroids as well. And um, okay, no difference in um, overall exacerbation rate and therefore presumably a pretty similar overall PRED dosing. But that will be also something to look at and presumably the longer term outcomes of all of the steroid side effects, which may be different in the ones that we see in an older multimorbid COPD population compared to a younger, less multimorbid asthma population. You know, we're, we're more likely to see vertebral fractures, aren't we? We're more likely to see terrible diabetes control, um, probably in this population compared to asthma. And therefore, that might be even more worthwhile. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think I wanted to just... I guess talk to you both about um well I'll let LJ lead on it as well but you know talk about how how are you approaching MDIs versus DPIs in your trusts because we took on a big quality improvement project um at City and Sandwell to try and uh, improve the prescription of DPIs um I just said dry powders and I must say even myself have anxiety about switching I'm happy to I, my impression is we need to be prescribed when we first see the patients be prescribed in the dry powders. So that's the norm. I think switching them, there's, there's, I feel that there is a, re a resistance to do so. Um, 
So um, when we, we from, from our quality improvement project, there was about 21% of our inhalers was dry powder, which is way off, you know, where we should be. Um, how are both of you, I'll, I'll go to Alice first, how are both of you tackling the, if at all, um, tackling the sort of dry powder uh, prescriptions uh, in your trust? Are you interested in, are you interested in increasing that ratio? Um, and yeah, that's a very long question. Hope you got it. I think um, different classes of healthcare professional, by which I'm in professional role, um, have always had slightly different opinions on the utilities of MDIs and DPIs. So when I first tested my own inhaler technique and realised I was frankly terrible at doing what I was supposed to do with an MDI, uh, but the nurses have been telling me for ages that everybody's better with an MDI and MDIs give you better inhaler deposition and things, I was like, actually, that's not true. Um, we, we we really do need to just in, assess inhaler technique with our people and work on that. So we, we we've got a and there are now DPIs that give um, that can work at the lower inspiratory capacities and uh, are easier to use. So um, I I would say I am relatively proactively trying to get people onto DPIs, um, and I am having conversations with patients directly about the reasons for that. Um, and by almost by repeating it to myself. I um I am more on board with it all as well. Um, like you intellectually can know something, but until you intellectually know it and you live it every day, you don't necessarily believe it in some respects. Um, and so and now I'm 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 just comfortable with having a green conversation with patients about DPIs. So that's I so great to that. hear because that's what we need for everybody to be doing. So it's really fantastic. And I absolutely think you're right. The more you have these conversations, the easier they become. When you start off, it feels weird to be bringing some issues around climate crisis or greenhouse gases into a consultation. But actually, once you start doing it, patients are all over this and they're interested and you can have really good conversations, just like we would about any um, shared decision making approach to care. Um, we have to remember that uh, um the HFCs in MDI inhalers are massive in terms of greenhouse gases. Um, inhalers are responsible for 13% of the emissions that are under the direct control of the NHS. So that excludes kind of supply chain emissions. That's a huge chunk. And 3% of the total NHS carbon footprint comes from MDI inhalers. And that's just because the, they're such powerful greenhouse gases that every inhaler um it is really significant in its impact. And we are an outlier in England. That's the other thing to remember in terms of our split DPI and MDI. So um, SABA inhalers actually contribute 67% of England's inhaler carbon footprint. So we're really over-reliant on short-acting bronchodilators. And we know that for asthma, and that's why Mart's so great for asthma. Um, and we know that 70% uh, of all inhalers issued in England are MDIs. And if we think about other kind of parallel countries in Europe, so Sweden, they only have 13% of inhalers that are MDIs. So we can definitely get a long way from where we are. And we know from lots of studies that actually, you're absolutely right, assessing inhaler technique and getting the right inhaler for the right patient is the right thing to do. But many patients if you assess their technique, it's much more of a quick deep breath in. It's much more of a dry powder type technique. And it's actually quite hard to do the MDI technique well. And so you do need a spacer and not everyone uses their spacer. So this is about good clinical care and getting the deposition of the drug into the lungs where it needs to work. And that goes alongside 
um, good planetary care, which is good clinical care because all of our patients are affected by the climate crisis today and will be in the future. So I think there is there are real opportunities for new starting people on new inhalers and there are opportunities to switch. Um, I think it's not that every patient you see you need to you need to be switching and some patients um, do better on an MDI absolutely and some patients just prefer it and that's fine but if we've had that conversation and made a decision together then then I think that's the way to go but that we are making some progress but it does need to be quicker. Brilliant. And I think you need, you've need you got to work with primary care if you want to do anything to change inhalers um, and, and the types that we're using. So um, local guidelines, going and talking to people, whatever it takes in your area to, to, to shift practice. I think shifting a prescription when somebody's in hospital or having a conversation in clinic is important. But unless you've got the rest of the healthcare system on board, your impact runs the risk of being minimal. That's absolutely right. Um and so the approach we're taking um, at King's is, is very much a joined up approach through with uh, in partnership with primary care. Um, and actually primary care are ahead of us a bit in this in terms of the information they've got available in their toolkit. So there's the Greener Practice Toolkit on asthma care. So actually they're leading the way. So we need to do everything we can to support them and to make sure we're, we're in line and definitely guidelines and then education around new guidelines is such a huge opportunity to just bring this message of clinical care and um, sustainable health care. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm probably going to move on to the next study, but any parting comments from either of you before we move on? No? Okay. So so back to me. So this is a study that actually Alice, uh, I think, was a, well, was, was partly involved in. So the title of the study is the P2X3 receptor antagonist philippixant in patients with refractory chronic cough, a randomized control trial. And this was a phase one or two A study across multiple sites that aimed to investigate the safety, the efficacy, tolerability of the P2X3 uh, Philip Pixant in uh, those patients with a refractory chronic cough. Um, and it also wanted to assess the um the uh, the how often patients suffered from taste disturbances. So the primary endpoint of the study was the 24-hour cough frequency by day four, alongside the cough severity and the health quality of life scores. So this was a crossover design. There was only, because uh, it was a phase one to 2A, um, and so these studies, having been involved in them myself, are, ver are very intensive. So the numbers are therefore low. Um so it was started off with N equals uh, 23. So 11 went into the placebo arm and 12 went into the P2X3. And then after they'd had a, a amount of time in either of those arms, they then switched over and had the other one. Um, the important exclusions from this study were those patients who were currently or previously heavy smokers and if they had an FEV1 of less than 60% so we clear obstructive lung disease to account for their you know to otherwise account for their refractory chronic cough. So the results of the study demonstrated that a dose of at least 80 milligrams significantly reduced the cough frequency uh, severity and the quality of life scores and it also across the board worked quite well so it reduced the cough frequency and it also 
re reduce the cough from baseline. And those effects were dose dependent. So if the smallest dose was 80 milligrams, it went all the way up to 250. And the patients went on increments throughout. They found that those improvements in the cough were yeah, dose dependent, depending on how much they had. There were no serious events and the taste was the taste services were reported throughout and were also found to be dose dependent. Um, so this sounds like quite an encouraging study. Um, and I'll let Alice take over because she was obviously one of the um, uh, recruiters to this study. So before I continue, Alice, would you like to tell me about your experience with this study and what you felt about it? Yeah. So, I mean, when we introduced each other, I didn't mention refractory chronic cough as something that I is my primary area of interest. But I, I kind of got into it because I was always seeing people coughing and I didn't really have anything that I could offer them. And once you, you know, run through all your different treatment trials of the underlying causes um, and you're left with the people where you've not found anything, what do you do with them? And I was trying to send my people to Manchester or London or Leicester and people didn't want to go. And so I thought, fine, um, I can deliver a clinical trial. I can do what somebody tells me to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start delivering some chronic cough studies. And so this particular one came along not as much the first one I delivered, but um, yeah, part part way through. And actually, I worked with the sponsors on the study design and was much more closely involved with the process. So something that's probably useful to put out there as a kind of make sure you know the definitions is what refractory chronic cough and idiopathic chronic cough are, because they're not the same. So refractory chronic cough is a cough that doesn't go away for eight weeks, whereas an idiopathic chronic cough, which we often think of, I think, as being refract, you know, idiopathic chronic cough is what we think of as our chronic cough population. But actually, drug companies are going down this as a refractory or unexplained. Um, so actually, our COPD and bronchiectasis and IPF populations who cough will potentially be eligible for these sorts of drugs because they are refractory, even if they're not unexplained. And so some of the trial protocols in the later phases of studies in this class um, are very clearly allowing people with asthma, IPF, in whom you've tried some other stuff already and their cough hasn't gone away. So, for example, an asthmatic where you've upped their asthma treatment and the cough still remains, they would still be eligible for this drug class. Um, and it's useful to remind yourself about neuromodulation of cough. Um, because P2X3 antagonists as a drug class are basically looking at neuromodulation of cough. So ERS guidelines, chronic cough, neuromodulation plus um, speech and language therapy and neuromodulators up to now have been gabapentin and progabalin. But now we'll be moving on to P2X3 antagonists. Um, why are they better or how do I tell it to my patients when I think about enrolling them in a study? I would say to them, your gabapentins and progabalins are um, overall global neuromodulators, and so they may be more prone to giving you some side effects. Theoretically, these newer drug classes act only on the pathways that cause you to cough, and so they might be less side effecty. But this particular drug class does have the potential for taste disturbance, and that's why it was so closely assessed. Um, I'd say... My experience in the trial was that you could probably tell that it was likely to be working based on, you know, what was coming through. And I think it's not the first drug in class. And there's Eliapixant, there's Gefapixant. Um, Gefapixant's been through phase three. 
Eliapixent uh, went through phase two and I think has stopped after that. But Gefapixent is probably the first that will hit the market in the UK. So a useful drug class to know about. Um, will it be more useful in the fullness of time than really getting your service sorted with a good speech therapist? Probably not. No, it's very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I did do some background reading about this because I think um, in an earlier podcast, we've covered the Gefapixant and, you know, where we're up to with that. And my reading of it was that it, it's got it's not yet approved by the FDA and NICE. Uh, the reason why the FDA have not approved it yet is that they've got no good definitive tool for measuring cough frequency accurately in terms of these studies. So that's, uh, that's really interesting to me. So, uh, so just above where I am now, now are the offices of um, Professor Beering and uh, Dr Cho who do lots of cough research and our seminar room is absolutely full of cough uh, uh, recorders that I people know. wear and they literally it counts every cough and so you can have a really good very accurate measure of cough frequency so that's really interesting to me because yeah they, they seem to have no problem uh, recording using those methods which are pretty well um, validated now I think. I mean to be fair I would agree Sorry, I was going to say this might have been a, a daily fail read. So, yeah, I, I yeah, what you say is I, right. I, do, I, I think what you see as the FDA approving outcomes is not always the same as the EMA approving outcomes as well. So things that can be relatively well accepted by one regulator might not be accepted by another. And um, I mean, all a cough recorder does is record sound. So if you if you if you if you went back to it and you looked at it, you could examine all sorts of things on it. And I had one or two patients who said, "No, I'm not going to do that because you're going to listen to what everything I'm going to say." Um, I'm not because I'm not. That's not what it's for. Um, but it will go through a, a program that will pick out the cough frequency, and that's that's how they do it. And do you imagine, I guess, to both of you, I, I, my concern with this is that does it need to be, does it need, when, once, so when it, so for example, does come through, you know, gets nice approved, who needs to hold the, the, the control of it? Because my worry is that if it goes through so that it's available, I don't want to offend any of my colleagues, but say it's available to, you know, everybody, I worry that it will be, oh, you've got a cough, here's some gefapixant. Does it need to be prescribed by at least secondary, if not tertiary care, respiratory physicians who are happy that, you know, lots of other boxes have, I know you say that they can have a cough and other conditions, but do you think in a bit like, um, you know, like phenidone is prescribed only by certain centres, do you think that this might be something where someone who's really got, uh, a handle a grasp on has everything else been ticked off like say a good speech and language assessment etc has that been done first then you can have it I, I don't know if you have a vibe on how you imagine it would be policed or if at all if it needs to be I think um it will be probably like many of these things introduced initially in secondary care but probably with some expansion later on um and I is it necessary to police it? I guess the, the necessity in some respects comes down to the comes down to the, the side effects, the risk, safety risks and the costs. If this is a safe drug with very few side effects and that is cheap, you're kind of talking about gabapentin already. Um, and probably that is being prescribed elsewhere as well. But after a secondary care assessment and approvals, um, 
So, so yes, I would see that it's important for these patients to have a good assessment in a chronic cough clinic, but I think in the fullness of time, that will probably expand. No, fair enough. Yeah, no, you're right. And LJ, um, any thoughts about how this might affect your clinical practice? I just would really love to have something to offer these patients who, uh, who we can't get a handle on their cough with other means, because I think I, during my training, you know, I thought of cough as not that interesting and not that important but actually the quality of life impact of chronic refractory cough particularly with the cough frequencies of some of these people is just devastating um so i think i'm excited about this class of drug and i'm hopeful for a small section of my patients who even when we optimize everything else cough is still a very significant symptom um so yeah interested to see more and and see when they get approved I think that a concern around the unexplained chronic cough population is medicalizing um, something that may not be a pathological problem. Um, and that comes down to many of the things where cognitive behavioral therapies and other understanding of where these symptoms are coming from is important. Um, in, in some respects, I'm most excited about this class of drugs for the people who've got a pathology underlying and I can't control their symptoms. And I'm thinking of my palliative IPF population in particular, where it's a real problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I agree. It's um, it is heartbreaking with these patients. And if you've exhausted your like, yeah, your list, then it's yeah, hopefully we'll be able to actually help these patients rather than just going down, for example, like say the the kind of opioid route, which none of us feel comfortable doing at all. Um, yeah. Okay, I think the last study then, um, if that's okay. Um, so back over to you, LJ, to talk about the final paper. So this paper is um, prospective detection of early lung cancer in patients with COPD in regular care by electronic nose analysis of exhaled breath. So I was really pleased to read this um, study. I think it, when I went to my very first BTS conference, um, someone was talking about the possibility of uh, looking at the breath of people and mapping what diseases they have. And I thought this was like amazing and futuristic, but we're quite a lot of years later down the line now and it's still not in practice but this paper might bring us a bit closer. So this was a Danish study um, published this year in CHEST but actually the study was done between 2017 and 2018. They used this thing called the E-nose which is um, seven metal oxide semiconductor sensors to detect um, things from the breath and particularly these things called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. And these sensors allowed them to build up breath profiles of what's being breathed out. Um, and so that that's what they they were analysing. I thought this was an interesting study because um, they were looking to determine the diagnostic accuracy of both the e-nose and also the software that then goes on to analyse it. And so they wanted to say, okay, if you get someone to breathe into this machine, can it tell the difference between patients who've got COPD, who've got lung cancer and who've got neither? So that was one question. And then the other really interesting question was, can they predict within the population of people with COPD, can they predict from the breath samples who then will be diagnosed with lung cancer? So that's a really important question because that's something we struggle with early detection of lung cancer. So they enrolled 893 patients, 682 of them had COPD, 211 had lung cancer. Um, 
And interestingly, they did this as part of kind of routine care. So it was just people turning up for lung function tests and they just added this detector thing on the end of it. And so there was no additional visit or anything. It was just kind of usual care, which I thought was interesting for thinking about real world use. And they detected these um, sort of breath profiles, what they called breath prints, which I, I liked as a term. Uh, they were able to identify um, different prints and to quite accurately actually um, tell the difference between patients with COPD, those with lung cancer and those with that. And also with very good accuracy. So there were of the 682 patients with COPD, there were 37 who then over the follow-up period of two years were later diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. And they were able to, to predict who these people were. Um, and there was some suggestion that actually a significant proportion probably had lung cancer that could have been diagnosed at time point zero. Um, and so the kind of um, numbers they were getting is like sensitivity of 86%, specificity of 89%. Um, the area under the curve was 0 0.9, uh, which is excellent. So this was a much more accurate from what they're telling us than I would perhaps expect from this kind of um, uh, data. So I think it's a really interesting application. There was already evidence of this kind of approach in terms of looking at the breath and looking at the components of that and being able to tell between different conditions. But this um, additional question of whether we might have a way to non-invasively identify people who have or are going to get lung cancer in a CUPD population, I think is really interesting. Perhaps we can think about you know, if this was to be rolled out where it might sit, given that there's quite a lot of changes going on in terms of how we try and detect lung cancer early. Yeah, fantastic. No, thank you. Um, I really enjoyed the paper as well. And I also remember hearing about, I remember it was like um, Midland Strategic Society, I think it was like 2014, uh, hearing someone talk about these, um, the, the VOCs and thinking it sounded very sort of, yeah, next generation, but interesting that it's now seeming like, it could be, I don't know, yeah, five to probably within our career going to be available to some of the population. Um, so and, and also it's just, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I'm a bit of a, uh, what do you call it? I uh, I fall for it. If a, if, a, if a pharmacy rep comes and sells me something, I just think it's the best thing since sliced bread. So I'm a bit bad at reading these papers and thinking, oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful. That said, this sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, and I think that if the idea of it, it sounds quite small, quite compatible, and it hasn't got the, um, so, you know, cause it, so it could fit into a consultation room and then it hasn't got the, uh, the the radiation that is associated with, for you know, like the low dose CT scans that we you know use at the moment for lung cancer screening. I don't know about you guys, but my, I still, I'll take your opinion on it, but I still feel a bit heart sink about low dose CT. And maybe I've gone off on a, oh, I can see LJ looking at me like I've got three heads, which I, I'll just say right now, I'm actively tired in breastfeeding. So I'm completely forgiven for like coming out with any drivel. But I think that I just see so many false positives coming through the system. And because I ran the virtual nodule, my, the reason for it is I ran the virtual nodule clinic at my, at my, um, at my hospital so we saw lots of false positives coming through from there and then we also um saw that 
I see a lot of patients with um, COPD and they're quite a, a funny population that I don't know if you look at the CT scan of someone that's got emphysema and they've got like bullous emphysema, you know, actually in terms of what counts as a cancerous lesion on there, it's so hard to see because they've got such mucky lung architecture because of everything else that's going on. So that's why I'm not. So I feel, I feel your pain. I feel your pain because I run our nodule service at my hospital. So I have exactly the same problems, but I think we have to try and, um, what we're trying to do here is to identify lung cancer early and like save those people's lives. Uh, and, and in the, at the same time, not be overdiagnosing loads of stuff and creating loads of worry and uh, in investigating things and then having harm um, in people who don't have it. And I think there's kind of there's the sort of general things around screening um, which have to be taken into consideration. And that's why there was it took a long time to get this through the um, National Screening Committee and there was pushback and they wanted more data and there's more data been produced. And so we've now got quite quite significant data that there's there's a real opportunity here for a stage shift and to diagnose people earlier so um that's why it did it was passed by the uk national screening committee which is a high bar so i think that that says a lot um it was based on that reduction in cancer mortality and the fact that it's an acceptable um uh, approach doing low dose ct i think there is a difficulty in some populations and particularly in patients with copd because we end up scanning them tons and you know you follow a nodule up for a bit and then that looks fine and stable but on their next interval scan they've got some other new thing because they've got inflammation so i actually reading this paper thought there might be a value here in people who have complex ct scans who we don't want to just keep scanning every three months if we could have another biomarker that might help us to risk stratify i don't know what you think alice yeah, I mean, I think I, I've thought this for quite some time and have done projects in, in the same space. And people have done this with more invasive technologies before. So they've done um, like nasal brush samples, thinking about bronchial epithelial field change throughout the throughout the respiratory tract and saying, well, you've got pre-malignant change in, uh, it, that you might be able to detect in, in, in one place. So... Yes, I would think about combining this sort of modality with a screening modality in order to um, detect the people where we've got biological patterns that are, you know, this is endotyping, isn't it, rather than phenotyping. This is endotyping saying we've got a pathological change that is now detectable. And if we can detect it with an e-nose rather than having to do a bronchoscope or a nasal brush, um, great. What I maybe would caution in terms of the paper on this one is the numbers are big when you look at the COPD numbers versus the lung cancer numbers. But then when you look at the numbers of COPD patients who developed an incident lung cancer, you're looking at 37 people, I think it was. Um, and therefore, the predictive value of that in the COPD population looks good. But is it going to stand up to another cohort that, that do it? Because a lot of these things that are metabolites are a bit like the GWAS studies. You're looking at many, many things. And so even if you just read the abstract and you see principal component one, principal component two and principal component three, what that really means is it's a big conglomerate of a bunch of different things that they put together to identify one principal component and then the other two. It's not like saying, you know, this is troponin and an MI or something which again, I guess we all know is not perfect for an MI either because it's up in your renal failures and your sepsis and all the rest of it. But it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's lots of things together and it's not going to be easy for every lab to do it. It 
um, may not be easy to come to identify and replicate in future studies because there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you measure a lot of stuff. So um, replication studies needed, um, but I think there's good biological evidence for why this might be. You know, there's shared pathogenesis um, in terms of field change of inflammation, then leading to malignant change, gene regulation patterns, methylation, epigenetic stuff, lots of um, fancy pathologi pathological stuff. I'm seeing dye glaze over already, um, which um, which is likely to be relevant to picking these people up early. And when you can't, when you don't know what the hell to do with their CT, like LJ said, um, it becomes another tool in your armory. That's yeah. a really helpful um, uh, caution. Uh, and I think something we probably need to factor in increasingly because some of what they, some of the mechanism um, of getting to the answer in this paper was to use things like machine learning. Um, and then you come up with all, the, you know, if you read the methods, I mean, I got lost. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I recognize the term bootstrapping. That's about it. So they seem like they've done some good statistical things to try and prevent too much um, overfitting or bias. But to be honest, it's very difficult reading something like this to really know how much to believe all of that, because I don't know anything about machine learning. But increasingly, we're going to be seeing these sorts of studies and going to have to get to grips to some degree with knowing how much to kind of take on face value some of these results. And But I guess those simple things of looking at the sample size and 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 thinking about well any uh, model that's derived in one population we need validation studies in another population before we're too excited about it is really helpful reminders of of just keeping our kind of critical thinking going i think that um what i was going to say that in terms of like you didn't know if you quite said it but like ai i think that this is you know again in our career this is going to come up more and more and we're going to be presented with in different modalities we're going to be presented with ai solutions to lots of things and it's going to seem you know seem brilliant but i think you're right we've got to maintain that critical thinking to these new solutions that we're not going to understand particularly well but but that said they are we are going to be responsible for the patient's care and decision making based on these tools so i think um i mean i'm hoping to try and do a podcast at some point about ai and respiratory applications because i think we are seeing it here and there and just to get someone to talk to me like i'm seven years old about ai you know and how it's going to feed into respiratory applications um and I think as well the other thing I'm learning a little bit about AI is that I don't think it will ever stand in isolation like which is just what you said I think that you it would be um, an adjunct to our other tools um namely obviously you know history examination things like that but then also the CT scan so it's never going to um replace I think our um, diagnostics, but it may well be an adjunct into filtering which side of a pathway a patient goes down if it means present, you know, preventing undue harm, like the way you said it in some of our COPD patients. So an interesting um, yeah, field that I think we'll all have to, whether we like it or not, get our head around at some point. So lovely. Can I just um, also uh, remind everyone of how great uh, the lung health techs really are? So um, the data is actually very good on this. So the biggest uh, studies are the NLST and Nelson. And we've been looking for some way to try and diagnose lung cancer early for a really long time, because as we know, most people are presenting with late stage disease, so stage three or four. Treatment options are very limited. This is already a population that's likely to be older and multimorbid. So we really do need to be diagnosing people at stage one and two. And the NLST, which is the very large American paper, um, 
compared to x-ray which we wouldn't do now but it was an older paper but showed um, really good outcomes in terms of the number needed to screen to prevent one cancer death was 323 which sounds a lot but for a screening program that's actually pretty great and then the Nelson study had a reduction in lung cancer mortality again and the number needed to screen to prevent one lung cancer death um, was 130 and that was with four rounds of screening so they're really good data and and there is there is definite um, evidence of uh, decreased cancer mortality and then we've also got several uh, pilots or or local studies now in um, London in Yorkshire in Manchester again showing that we can get the right population particularly we can um, make sure that these um, screening tests get to the deprived populations that are most likely to benefit and that there are additional benefits. So if people are coming for a lung health check, they're also getting smoking cessation and they might not be getting that intervention otherwise. So there's additional ways that this might be both clinically and cost effective. Um, and so it's a very exciting time to have um, these rolling out. They should be available across the whole of England by 2029. So if they're not with you already, they're coming to a local place to you. And the other reassuring thing is that things like incidental findings and nodules are actually kept within the programme. So they're not going to overwhelm our already kind of stretched NHS lung cancer services or other services. So it's been really well thought out to make sure that this is deliverable. Amazing. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I must say, I'm, I was hoping to do at some point a lung cancer um, uh, podcast because I, I, I apologise that I, it's really a, an area that I think you either do or don't do with, with lung cancer. And I think, um, but no, thank you for informing us more about that. And I'll really, yeah. Look Are you convinced? To Are you convinced, it. Diana? I'm convinced. I'm convinced. <laughs> and I've... Um, if I could, if the ground could swallow me up right now, I, I would let it. So, um, but not at all, not at all. We, I mean, nodules are a real thing to contend with. So, it, it, we definitely need really good pathways because it's everyone's nightmare, including mine. <laughs> I, I say, I think it just that just comes from a, a knee jerk place of yeah, a, a folder of nodules to plow through. At, yeah, a hospital. So, yeah. Lovely. Um, well, thank you so much to both of you for attend for joining the podcast. I think it's been yeah really interesting and, and fantastic to um, you know kick off the uh, series two of the of the series. So um, yeah, thank you very much. Have you got any parting comments, perhaps about what we're going to see in COPD in the future, or what to look out for, either of you? I think it's all going to be about personalised medicine, as indeed everything should be really is is about put the individual in front of you and making it all about what they what's going on for them. And that might be biologically, like the lung cancer study that we've just seen it or it could be personally um, or whatever. It needs to be um, tailored to them. So. Fantastic. I would just also say that COPD is endlessly fascinating um, and there's a lot we still don't know, but increasingly we're learning so much about pathophysiology and that is then leading into um, personalised medicine and real um, clinic applications. So it's a great time to be doing COPD. It's not going away and it's totally fascinating. Yeah, no, I quite agree. It is nice. I, I always consider myself an airway specialist and it is nice to suddenly find yourself in the area that seems to be, um, you know, the most, it seems to be rapidly expanding and more exciting. So it is a good time to be practicing airways disease medicine. So brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. And I hope to see you both at a conference very soon. Take hope care. so. Thank you Thanks. so much. Great to meet okay. you both. Thank you. Thanks. All the best. Bye. Bye. 
you liked what you heard today, then please do disseminate to your peers and colleagues and leave a review and hit subscribe. Thank you very much. Thank you.